0: Our sermon text is from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Can you just pray with me just for a moment uh, as we dive into the word of God? Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for their pastor. His wife and their family, their children. I thank you for the members here. I thank you for all those who've been here before and those who've passed and those who are to come. I thank you for their faithfulness. God, um, when we gather together, when I have a chance to be here, I'm reminded of the faithfulness of God. Uh, And we know that this church does not rest on the pastors, on the shoulder of one pastor, but on the foundation that assured Jesus Christ. And it's him we proclaim this morning. We ask that he would show up and that he would make much of himself, that he would glorify himself in our midst, and that we would get a fuller picture of God, a fuller picture of the risen King Jesus who is establishing a new kingdom and making all things new for his namesake. And in order for that to be a possibility, in order for us to even understand the words uh, written in this text, for any of this to be real, we need the spirit of the living God. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, spirit of the living God, the same spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, we ask that he would now come fall fresh in this place. That we might believe, that we might repent, and that we might see Christ and cherish him. The word is brought forth, we pray that you would be honored. Feed your sheep this morning, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Uh, if you were with us last week, you know, we all preached the same text um, across the Christ the King congregations. Last week, uh, You know the end of chapter 5 chronicles uh, the nature of persecution that befell, that befell Christians' and what you see in the book of acts is that in spite of growing opposition against the preaching of the gospel that the apostles and the first christians all remain committed to preaching the good news of the gospel to the whole creation and being committed to the great commission of making disciples of all nations, what we see is actually a rejoicing in the midst of suffering, a rejoicing in the midst of tribulation. No matter the schemes of man or of the devil, God will not be stopped in his advancement of the gospel. Amen, somebody. The threat of persecution now continues to loom. And you're going to see next week in this text that persecution is about to come in full force as Luke recounts the first martyr in church history, Stephen, whom we're going to read about today. But at the beginning of Acts 6, our passage for today, he takes a break in the narrative and he tells us about this significant conflict which arose within the church that had the potential to be the first church split. Yet we see the faithfulness of God in the midst of this conflict, not only to maintain the unity of the diverse body of Christ, but also to continue to establish and strengthen the church's ability to serve as effective witnesses for the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. My hope this morning as we look at this passage You know, in some ways it is about deacons, but it's actually about so much more. My hope is twofold. First, that God would continue to impress upon his church here in this neighborhood a continued commitment not only to gospel proclamation, but also to gospel renewal. And secondly, that the Lord would cast vision among us this morning to raise up more servant leaders to help aid in the task of gospel ministry. Here's the big idea. This is what I want you to lay a hold of this morning. That Jesus builds his church with truth and justice. Jesus builds his church with truth and justice. I got two points for you today. The first one is this, that God calls the church to pursue justice. And number two, that God raises up servant leaders for the task. God calls the church to pursue justice and he raises up servant leaders for the task. Let's look at that first point. He calls the church to pursue justice. Go ahead, open your Bibles and read verse 1 with me again. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, let's stop right there. The first thing that I want you to see here in this verse alone is that God calls his church to pursue justice now, we're going to get to the, the narrative and talk about this complaint that is uh, brought forth by the Hellenists in just a moment, but I want to talk a moment about this, this phrase, the daily distribution. This is the first time in Acts that we're actually reading of this particular ministry of the early church that's called the daily distribution, and presumably what we can learn from the text is that this was a ministry that served widows, women whose husbands had passed. Now, what was it that was distributed? Well, if you remember in Acts 2, 42 to 47 and Acts 4, 32 to 37, those passages were uh, summaries of what life in the daily church, in the early church looked like. We read that the church had all things in common and that nobody was in need. I mean, can you imagine that, right? Those with money and possessions even sold their properties. They took the proceeds. They sold their fields, their houses, and they gave it to the apostles so that they might redistribute the funds the best way that the apostles saw fit. So presumably, one of the ways they used these funds was to distribute, help distribute food, clothing, resources, and even money, particularly for widows and their children. This would support the verses in Acts where Luke writes that everyone had everything in common and that not a single person was found lacking anything. Now, the question is, why widows specifically? Well, widows during this time were particularly vulnerable and especially powerless since their husbands were their only source of income and financial stability. you think women have it bad now, and they do, especially across the world in the persecuted church. But back then, it was certainly worse. Young widows with young children were especially vulnerable in these situations. And so the church had this ministry committed to taking care of all the widows in their midst, caring for widows now, was not a new concept for the, for, for the people of God. It wasn't just a Christian ministry, but actually the Jewish people also were instructed to care for widows and protect widows. Let me read for you what God says in Exodus 22. This is bananas to me. He says this, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Now listen to this. This is, this is Old Testament, okay? This is what the Lord says. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you. (laughs) ESV, I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's how seriously God took taking care of widows. And so what we see here is that God has always maintained that obedience to Him was not simply just a matter of loving Him and worshiping Him in your hearts, but also loving your neighbors as yourselves, yeah. right? Serving one another and caring specifically for the marginalized and the oppressed. In the Old Testament, if you read through the prophets, if you see the trajectory of Israel, what you will see is that God consistently holds two sins. Two sins. He brings these charges against Israel, two consistent sins that they were guilty of. The first was uh, 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 sins of worship. They worshiped false gods. They adapted pagan practices. But the second sin was that they pursued injustice, a failure to care for widows and orphans and the poor and the marginalized. But what we see here in this text, brothers and sisters, is that God has always steadfastly been committed to the pursuit of justice Especially among his people. Amen. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard Micah 6 8 quoted often. And the reason it's quoted so often is precisely because of the reasons I said. God's prophets were consistently sent to his people to preach against their idolatry, but also their injustice. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so what we see here with the Christian church is a continuation of those values, a commitment by the church to pursue holistic gospel ministry. Say holistic with me. Holistic. Holistic gospel ministry. Holistic is just another word for comprehensive. What I mean is that holistic ministry means that the church was not merely content with making sure people's souls were saved, but that their whole beings were well cared for as well. You see, the gospel it's not just about the grace of God permeating one's own individual soul and life, but it's actually about the grace of God permeating all things and thereby renewing all people and all of creation. Part of that's, that's crucial to your mission statement as a church, right? That God is reconciling us to him, but also us to one another for the joy of the city. The gospel is the good news, not just the renewal of your own life, but the renewal of all things. And God is reconciling all these things together through the cross of Jesus Christ. He's making peace by the blood of his cross. Sin has jacked everything up. It has broken everything, and Jesus' reconciling work seeks to make all things new. It's all things new, and that's the way that things were supposed to be. Now, here's why this is important. All right, I'm going to get a little controversial. The Western church, particularly evangelicals, particularly evangelicals in the US have historically had this hyper-focus on individualism because we're Americans, that's what we do. It's all about me, 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 right? Hyper-focus on individualism and therefore we've often truncated the gospel and reduced it down merely to personal salvation and forgiveness of sins. We've made it just about that That's what we've made it about, and that's why you'll see great emphasis on evangelism, and rightfully so, and great emphasis on the preaching of God's word, rightfully so, and yet such little engagement with issues of justice. We freak out when we hear the the J word. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about justice. Ah, you're getting political, right? So many Christians, especially in our denomination, we get alarmed when we hear this word, say that there needs to be a separation of church and state that we need to preserve the spirituality of the church. One pastor friend in our denomination who I spoke to this week, he told me that the three things that our church, our denomination freaks out about the most, three things, the role of women, issues of justice, and race. You mention any of those things, people start freaking out and accuse you of veering from the Bible, of veering from the gospel, of veering from things of the Kimen. You see, that's what we do. We love reducing the gospel down to hashtags, sound bites, and tweets, don't we? We love this comfortable Christianity that only deals with us and makes it comfortable for us. But the gospel is actually good news for all of creation. If your gospel only addresses individual sins but ignores the way that sin has brought devastation upon the whole cosmos and the whole created order, things, it's no gospel at all. It is not a biblical gospel. In a world wrecked by sin and its devastating effects, populated with people who are under the wrath of God, this is what Jesus does. He dies on the cross. He pays for our sin. He's resurrected from the dead. And then he begins his ministry of reconciliation. And it's not only between us and God, but also us and one another and all of creation. Jesus, he's restoring all things. He's making all things new. You track it with me. All right? That's why Jesus himself declared in Luke 4, 8, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, a lot of people like to look at that particular text and say, oh, he's just talking about our souls. He's simply just talking about individual sin and salvation. But you see, Jesus was the greatest rapper and lyricist of all time. These verses are double entendres. You guys know what double entendres? Each sentence actually has double meaning. Okay? Jesus' own ministry on earth was one where he pro- preached the forgiveness of sins, but also the coming of the kingdom of God, whereby all things would be made new again. And so Jesus, as he called people to repentance from their sins, he also hung out And entered into the lives of the oppressed of society, the beggars, the prostitutes, the thieves. And he restores their dignity and makes them whole and delivers them from darkness, all the while forgiving them of their sins. That's what Jesus does. And if this is true of Jesus' ministry, then it must be true of our ministry here in our neighborhood and in our city as well. Amen, somebody. In fact, I would go on to say this, that if we pursue gospel ministry and we remove justice and the pursuit of justice from it, we would be in great sin. It's not gospel ministry at all. That's why if you consider the civil rights movement, it was led by the church. It's because the church recognized first and foremost, the African-American church, that it was grave injustice happening in the United States. And it was led out of a deep understanding that the gospel leads to the reconciliation of all things. I want to tell you a story to illustrate this. Years ago, there was a pastor that I know who was hired with the task of helping revitalize an old church in our denomination down in Florida. The church was founded in a neighborhood that historically had been white. The church's demographics at the time reflected the neighborhood's demographics. Again, all white. Over time, however, the neighborhood began changing dramatically with a large influx of Latino immigrants and Latino families moving into the neighborhood. Meanwhile, the church failed to adapt as its demographics remained the same, and soon the church began feeling a disconnect between who they were and who the neighborhood had become. You see, they had this godly desire to effectively minister to people in their own city with the gospel— And yet, they understood that they weren't getting it done. They wondered, for some reason, people just aren't showing up to our doors, right? And so this pastor came, and under his leadership, two major initiatives began taking shape. Here's the first one. They began offering ESL classes for immigrants, right? I know there are some parts of the country that are very hostile to immigrants, and you would think that, especially given this demographic and all that, that they would be. But but they started offering ESL classes. That like, we need to teach English as a way of blessing our neighbors. Here's the second thing they did. This was even more radical, in my opinion. The pastor's wife, she began undergoing extensive training with our denomination, the PCA's Refugee and Immigrant Ministry. Yes, we have that. That's crazy to me. And what she did was she became a consultant and a liaison for immigrants in their neighborhood so that the church might better practically provide and serve resources to care for non-English speaking Hispanic immigrants. You see, they were watching out for the entire well-being, understanding that to be an immigrant in this country is terrifying, All right. Now, you may label that simply as outreach and evangelism, but I'm telling you that at the heart of this outreach and evangelism was the pursuit of justice the pursuit of biblical justice. At our church, the way that this plays out, Christ the King Dorchester is this. Let me list a few things, and this is not to say that we're doing anything particularly well, but we're trying. Here's one thing that we're doing is we're engaging consistently and constantly on issues of race and injustice at our church. Currently, we're going through uh, this small group curriculum called Be the Bridge to Racial Unity where we are trying to give voice to, to those members of our community, our congregation, particularly black, brown, and darker skin, and non-white members, to give them a voice about their experience being at our church and the challenges of all that they give up being part of a predominantly white congregation. We also take up a benevolence offering once a month that our diaconate manages and distributes to care for those in our congregation that gets well utilized and also outside of our congregation. uh, We've partnered in the past and even promoted ministries like Fair Foods, which endeavors to offer affordable groceries to people who otherwise might not be able to afford it across the city. At one point, our church even offered free GED and ESL classes to our neighbors. We do all of these things not to feel good about ourselves, but because we believe that it is a biblical command to care and to pers- care for those in need and to pursue justice. And it's not out of a sense of paternalism, like God, this neighborhood needs us, but it's out of a deep love and conviction that that's what Jesus calls us to do. The pursuit of justice, you cannot divorce the pursuit of justice from gospel ministry. Now, I want to make this clear. I am not equating gospel ministry with the pursuit of justice. That's not what I'm saying, all right? I'm not, what do they call it? Social justice warrior? SJW, right? that's, That's not what I'm promoting here. Gospel ministry, absolutely central to it, it's the proclamation of God's word, and if there's no preaching of God's word and the gospel and a calling people out of a, out of a life of sin into repentance and into new life with Christ, then it's gospel, not gospel ministry. But what I'm also saying is that we can't claim to have gospel ministry if we're not pursuing the heart of God. And if we're not keen to the needs of our neighbors, the needs of our own community— we fail to pursue justice, if we fail to ignore those who are hungry, who are in need who are being oppressed, we're not being the church at all. As those who've received the gospel of grace in our hearts and we've had our sins forgiven, and we're in the process of being made new again and again daily, by His Spirit, being sanctified, walking in the newness of life, Christians, we ought to be the most vigilant in caring for the oppressed and pursuing justice. God calls the church to pursue justice. Amen, somebody. Now, I want to go back to our text. That was just the first verse, so you can imagine how long I'm going to go. I'm just playing. I know I'm guest speaking, so I know I'm on the timer. I'm almost done. We go back to our text, we see that there was a problem that arose when it came to the daily distribution. Now, let me explain to you what the problem was. During this time, there arose two predominant groups of Christians, those who were Hebraic Jews and those who were Grecan Jews. What that means is the Hebraic Jews were the ones who spoke Aramaic and thoroughly were thoroughly Jewish culturally and linguistically. But there were also these Greek Jews who spoke Greek, who were culturally Greek, who were from the Greek uh, Jewish diaspora, and they were very much Greek culturally and linguistically. And what we find out is that the Greek Jewish widows, the Greek Christians, were the ones being neglected in this particular ministry for whatever reason. And so there arises complaints and grumblings on the part of the Hellenists. Now, this was probably an error of administration and not an intentional neglect. It wasn't like the apostles were intentionally neglecting this subset of people. Because up until this point, the apostles did everything. You guys remember what it's like being a part of a church plant. The pastor, for whatever reason, he thinks he's Jesus and does everything, right? Until leaders are raised up, right? That's kind of what happened here. The apostles did everything, right? They not only led the church in preaching, teaching, prayer, and evangelism, but they also oversaw all the logistics and the administration and the distribution and the caring for the oppressed and the poor. Now, remember, this church was a mega church at this point. I know we don't have many of those here in Boston, but 5,000 members and counting at this point is how big the early church was. You just realize that at a certain point, they realized this is too much work for us. We can't keep up. Nonetheless, the potential for division was real. There was resentment rising up amongst Greek Jewish Christians because they thought that their widows were being neglected for cultural reasons. This could easily have been a moment for the church to split. I've been a part of a lot of church splits. This could easily have been one of those moments. And yet, we see the hand of God working in the church through the response of the apostles. This leads me to my second point. Not only does God call the church to pursue justice, but he also raises up servant leaders for the task. Read verse 2 with me. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Apostles had two options. They embraced the, 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 they embraced the problem in hand or they ignore it. And rather than ignore the complaint, they said, let's embrace it. Let's figure something out. Apostles gathered the church together. They prayed deliberate, and they decide that they as apostles, their ministry of preaching the word of God and praying for the church and leading the church in that area must continue That needs to be their primary focus, but they also recognize that the church can't neglect the pursuit of justice and that the Hellenist widows should not be ignored. So what do they do? They decide that in their place, they're going to raise up leaders to aid in this task of ministry. And so they ask the church to choose seven men who will serve in this capacity, and these men are brought before the apostles. They're prayed for and ordained for the work of ministry. Many in the church have historically viewed this text as the first foundational passage where we see the office of deacon rise up, even though we never see the word deacon actually used. The apostles uh, called primarily to ministry of word and prayer. They were the first elders. And these seven men were the first model for deacons. They were called primarily to serve for the widows and the poor. Now, two things I want to point out here, and I told you I'm done. This point is going to be a lot shorter, okay? I know you're used to shorter sermons, so I won't go 45 minutes as I usually do. All right, two things I want to point out here. First, the work of gospel ministry is not reserved exclusively for ordained ministers and elders. Amen. All of us are called to gospel ministry. Amen. Just because you are not called to preach and teach the Bible does not mean that you are not called to serve and engage in gospel ministry. If the church was dependent on preachers to run the show, then the ship would sink quickly. Amen, somebody. Amen. If it's true that gospel ministry is not only just a proclamation of God's word, but also the comprehensive renewal of all things, it means that the church needs to be more than just pastors and elders doing everything to serve the cause of Jesus and his kingdom. So here's my encouragement to you. All right, If you're serving in the church in a capacity that does not involve teaching and preaching, and that's most of you, because you only have a couple elders— and yet you're faithfully using your gifts for the Lord, I want to encourage you and say thank you on behalf of Pastor Logan and the elders. Thank you. What you do is critical and vital to the mission of the church. And I promise you, this ain't a prosperity gospel, but God will bless you spiritually. He will honor your faithfulness and your service. Here's what I also want to say, though. If you're not serving, if you're just showing up and you're milking this cow. I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider how you might actually serve and use your gifts for the sake of the gospel here in this neighborhood, for this church. Please do not fall into the trap of American consumerism that says the church exists for you. So many of us fall for that trap. We think we can just show up and receive and we're good. We feel that much more entitled when we tithe. But like, well I paid my fee today to hear my sermon. Preach to me, pastor. Create programs for me. Exist for me. Listen, you do not exist for yourself. The church does not exist for you. You exist for Jesus and his church. That's why he's gifted you. That's why he's given you what your passions and desires and your talents and your resources. It's for the kingdom. Consider serving if you're not. Consider serving. Second thing I want to show you, though, that when it comes to raising up leaders in the church, for the task of gospel ministry. I want you to see that God values character over competence. Competence, brothers and sisters, is important. Skill is vital. You can't put somebody in a position of leadership if they don't know what they're doing. Although we see that quite often these days, don't we? Competence is important, but it does not trump character. Character is primary to God. Now, this runs counter to our culture and to what the world values. The world places primary value on what a person does, but God places primary value on who a person is. To God, who you are and how you act and how you behave when no one is licking is just as important as how you are when you're around church folk. Everyone could put up a good front. Who are you when no one's looking? Notice the three qualifications for these seven men that the apostles list out. First, good repute. Second, full of the Spirit. And three, of wisdom. Now Luke takes care to mention uh, specifically Stephen as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and this will be because he's going to be the first martyr. The first martyr was a deacon, by the way just want to let you know, any of you deacons, I just want to let you know that it wasn't a pastor, it wasn't an elder, it was a deacon who was first martyred, okay? But, but let me break down these three, uh, three qualities, qualifications. Good repute. To have a good repute means that you've got a good reputation, right? It means that everyone regards you highly, everyone has already witnessed you and your servant heart, that you've already got a ministry that you're sowing into, Full of the Spirit implies that not only are you a believer who has repented of your sin and placed faith in Jesus Christ, but it also means that you're a believer who's continuing to walk with Jesus daily and being filled with his Spirit, walking in the newness of life, pursuing him, crying out to him. And of wisdom means that you've been gifted wisdom and discernment, which comes from the Lord alone. It's a gift from him. You see, there is an expectation in the Bible that there is going to be godliness among leaders in the church. And that should be scary to some of us. Later on in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the Apostle Paul is going to go ahead and expand on these characteristics, characteristics, and he lays out exactly what it takes to qualify to serve as an elder or a deacon in the church. But in all of these qualifications, if you can sum it up in one word, it would be this, godliness, godliness. Now, what exactly is godliness? Let me tell you what godliness is not. Godliness is not someone who has perfected the Christian life and obeys all of God's laws perfectly. Only Jesus is that. Godliness is not someone who is perfectly holy. Only Jesus can lay claim to that title. Amen, somebody, right? Godliness is, however, a person who's experiencing the grace of God daily in their lives and pursuing holiness and intimacy in their walks with Jesus on a regular basis. Godliness is a person who by grace is daily being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Godliness is somebody who daily is repenting of their sins, walking in the newness of life that they're called to, by his spirit. If you're a leader of this church, especially if you're serving as a deacon and elder, what the Bible says is that you ought to be someone who people not only recognize as being a model servant, but also a model disciple of Jesus Christ. You have to be someone worthy of imitation. People who are young in their faith ought to look at you and say, I want to be like this brother or this sister. Not only because they serve, but because of their faith their humility, and how they model repentance and faith. There's something about them, there's something about the way that they engage with Jesus and they live for him that I want to imitate in my life. Now, if that sounds scary and crushing to you, good. I'm Korean, so that's like my forte. It means I'm really good at guilting people. But this is where the gospel comes in. It's a, call, it's a high calling and a high task to be an officer in the church, to be any sort of leader in the church. But here's the good news. If it's left up to us, it's impossible. But praise God, it does not depend on us. It does not depend on our own strength and our own abilities, but he gives us his Holy Spirit. And here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit of the living God enables us to die to our sin every single day more and more to live unto Jesus Christ in righteousness more and more every day. Amen. Now, the responsibility on, is on us to embrace. It's not like we just take a back seat and God does all the work. We need to submit to him. That's the work that we do daily again and again. But you allow God to work in your heart and you submit to him, his spirit will sanctify you Amen. by grace every single day. This is, this is a reminder to all church leaders, to deacons, to elders, And to the staff of this church especially, it is not enough for all of us to be servant-hearted and to be really awesome super volunteers. Leaders in the church are not meant to be super volunteers who are super reliable and servant-hearted. Not just that. These things are awesome, but we're first and foremost called to godliness and holiness. There ought to be evidence in our lives that we are being transformed, that we're dying to our sin, and we're walking with Jesus. The kingdom of God is not full of people who are really good at doing a lot of things but who aren't growing inwardly and aren't walking with faith and integrity. That's the kind of people that God is raising up. People who model humility, a love for the gospel, and are walking like Jesus more and more every day. Praise God that he calls the church not only to pursue justice, but that he raises up godly leaders for the task of gospel ministry. I think I speak for Pastor Logan when I say that I as a pastor am grateful for brothers and sisters in your midst who have been faithfully laboring for the sake of the gospel. Do not give up. The Lord is watching. Now I want to close with this. I told you I'm done after this, right? Let me read verse 7 together I'm going to close here. The word of God and the word of God continue to increase. The Preaching of the gospel continue to go forth. Proclamation of God's word. And the number of of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that amazing? We see this refrain again and again in the book of Acts, that in spite of the persecution, in spite of the threat of division, in spite of suffering, God continues to grow his church, continues to multiply his church And what we see here specifically is that God used the ministry of word, the preaching and teaching of the word of God and the gospel, and the ministry of deed, the pursuit of justice and the caring for the oppressed and the marginalized. And what he does is he uses these things in synergy to draw men and women and children to repentance and to himself. And this is the first time we read now that the priests were coming to faith. Religious people are some of the hardest people to convert. You know that? You know there's tons of people who go to church and don't know Jesus? Some of you are like, what? Yes. Remember, it was the high priest who had the apostles arrested. It was the religious authorities out of their jealousy who persecuted the church. And yet we read here that somehow now they begin experiencing conversions. I think here's why. It's because they began seeing what was promised in the Old Testament. Heaven coming down to earth, a new kingdom being restored, being established, where God's people would not only love him faithfully, but respond to his grace and to His saving work on the cross by giving it all away, not living for themselves, pursuing justice. And so we see here again and again, you're going to see this refrain throughout the book of Acts that as the gospel is preached and proclaimed and the church is committed to making disciples and the church lives out gospel values and gospel community, God greatly multiplies and adds to the number those who are being saved. And so my encouragement and my prayer for both of our churches, Christ the King, Dorchester, J.P. Roxbury, would we continue to persevere? Would we not lose heart? Would we be committed not only to gospel proclamation, but also ministry of deed, gospel renewal? And God promises that one way or another, he will add to our numbers those who are being saved. And so would you pray with me to that end, that God would increase this church's influence in this particular area? Not so that this church would be fly, right? And this church and Pastor Logan would, you know, grow in recognition, but that the name of Jesus Christ might go forth And the word of God would increase in this area, in this part of the city. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the many years already that they've labored faithfully and how they've already been uh, ministering faithfully in this context and in this way. That they have uh, faithfully sought not only to preach Christ and the forgiveness of sins, but also Christ exalted and resurrected and making all things new. God, would your church continue to rise up and answer the call to defend the cause of the poor, to help provide liberty to the captives, to see justice restored, and would we all do this as a result of having been freed by Jesus? Jesus, we thank you that true justice would have been us receiving what we actually deserve, which is death and punishment forever. But instead, the justice of God meant that the Son of God would be crucified so that we might be freed from the penalty of sin and so that the world might have a chance of being truly made renewed and restored. I press that upon our hearts deeply as we go forth with gospel and ministry. I pray for CDK, J.P. Roxbury in particular. Please preserve this congregation. Please cause this congregation to thrive and grow. Raise up servant leaders in, this, in, the, in their midst and add to this flock the number daily those who are being saved. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.